Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines a new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Caroline or Change. doing how am i doing how are you doing patty honestly do you feel worn out today i feel worn out the city of chicago is drenched rain all day it it just feels like we are being wrung out as a city i want this winter to come to an end yes patty is nodding in vigorous agreement i hope wherever you are that if you are feeling worn out you are able to just lie down isn't it nice to just lie down (laughs) sometimes, and just breathe a little bit, enjoy a podcast that you like to listen to for the sake of relaxing. Maybe this is a show. I I do tend to talk very quickly, and I do tend to talk in a very almost pained tone. Or Some would describe it as earnest. I would like to be harsher on myself and describe my tone as pained. So maybe this doesn't relax you. Maybe this is a podcast that you listen to when you're working out, when you're doing something more strenuous. I don't know. Chores? Ooh, chores. Maybe you like doing chores. I don't know. I don't know what relaxes each and every one of you. But hopefully with time, we will learn that about each other. This is a podcast dedicated to the Tony Award for Best Musical. So let's get some show facts about today's subject, Caroline or Change. Caroline or Change was a 2004 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on May May 2nd, 2004 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater and ran for 136 performances. The book was by Tony Kushner. The music was by Janine Tesori and the lyrics were also by Tony Kushner. Now you may recognize Janine Tesori's name. That's because she wrote the music for Shrek the Musical. Uh, She is also known for her work on Thoroughly Modern Millie, Fun Home, and Violet, among other projects. The director of the original production of Caroline or Change, the Broadway production, I should say, was George C. Wolfe. He won a Tony in 1993 for directing another of Kushner's works. Of course, that would be Angels in America. The choreographer for Carolina Change was Hope Clark, set design by Ricardo Hernandez, costume design by Paul Teswell. Uh, the original Broadway cast of Carolina Change included Tanya Pinkins, Chuck Cooper, Rachel Bean, Tracy Nicole Chapman, David Costable, Aisha DeHaas, Marcus Carl Franklin, Marva Hicks, Capathia Jenkins, uh, who has been mentioned on this show before. Quick note regarding uh, Capathia Jenkins. Uh, You might remember us talking about her work in Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me. She sang, I believe the name of the song is A Big Black Lady or A Big Black Woman Stops the Show, something along those lines. Uh, The rest of the cast uh, included Larry Keith, Ramona Keller, Alice Platon, Leon G. Thomas,
Thomas III, Anika Noni Rose, Harrison Chad, Vian Cox, and Chandra Wilson. Uh, to jump back real quick to Anika Noni Rose, Disney fans would know her as the voice of Tiana in The Princess and the Frog, and she played a key role in the Dreamgirls movie. Uh, additional Tony nods for Caroline or Change beyond its nomination for Best Musical. Uh, Tony Kushner received a nomination for Best Book of a Musical. Janine Tesori and Tony Kushner received a joint nomination for Best Original Score. Tanya Pinkins was nominated for a Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical Award. Okay, so George C. Wolf was uh, nominated for Best Direction of a Musical, and the only award that it won went to Anika Noni Rose for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical. So including Best Musical, six nominations in total, one win. I would like to take a moment to discuss how the writing team for Caroline or Change uh, was white, while artists of color filled the roles of director, choreographer, set designer, and costume designer. Uh, So the plot of the show focuses on the relationship between a black woman and the Jewish family that she works for. So you really do need a variety of voices coming together to shape and tell a story like that. It seemed and still seems off to me that Bubbling Brown Sugar was a story exclusively about black culture created by black artists and yet overseen by a white director. I didn't see the necessity of a white man being in that particular seat, acting as an overseer for a story that had nothing to do with his experiences. On the flip side, the team behind Caroline or Change uh, is arguably more consciously and appropriately balanced. And what you get with that balance, I think, is a check on the writing itself. Kushner and Tesori are Jewish. They know how to speak to the experiences of the Jewish characters in that show. But by writing for black characters, they needed artists of color in positions of influence who could be in the room, raise their hands, and say, you know, this needs to be fleshed out, or I think we're relying on assumptions or stereotypes here. When you create an environment where people listen and learn by listening, you're only helping yourself. You're only helping the final product to shine even brighter. A recent example of Kushner being checked like this, uh, like the way that I'm trying to describe, involves his work on the script for Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story that's currently in development. Rita Marino, who was in the original film and is going to be starring in the remake, flat out told Steven Spielberg that the Spanish dialogue Tony Kushner was writing was clunky and essentially terrible. That's a fair and necessary check. If you didn't have someone like Rita Marino to call that out, who knows how far along that dialogue could go in the process. You could be completely misrepresenting how an entire community talks, how they communicate with each other. So you need a variety of perspectives and backgrounds in the room. And it really does seem like this team worked very uh, cohesively and very well to create a final product that I, I described it, I used the word shine, and Caroline or change really does shine. I think this is a great moment to say that this is the first show I believe... Well, no. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, that's a sung-through show with a single line of dialogue. And Carolina Change is another example of the sung-through musical. The two-disc cast album represents the show in its entirety. It is a monster of an album, and it really showcases the amount of work that went into this show. Uh, If it isn't clear already, I love Carolina line or change, and I'm very excited to be talking about it with you today. I'm very, I'll 
also, I'll just shout out right now, Matt, you're going to get your musical shout out later. Uh, but I want to just say to you, uh, thank you so much for suggesting this along with the other shows that you suggested. It, it was time for me to really sink my teeth into Carolina Change. Uh, this is a show that I think exists in the periphery of many a musical theater lover's mind, their frame of reference. It just sort of is hazily hanging about with a lot of other shows. Uh, but if you if you haven't dug into it yet, do yourself the favor. Uh, there's going to be a link, of course, on our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod. You listen to the entire album. That's that's a favor that you're absolutely going to be doing uh, for yourself. It's an absolute treat. Uh, so please enjoy. Maybe just do that right now if you haven't already. Don't wait for this episode to end for me to convince you. If I haven't already done it yet, just dive in right now. Listen to the whole thing and then come back. Are you back? Fantastic. Oh, good. You're back. Thank you. You look cold. Here, here's a blanket. I'll wrap it around you. The plot. Okay, so let's give a really nice, juicy uh, description of the plot here, shall we? Yeah, I think that would be a great idea. So the plot of Carolina Change. We are uh, based in the year 1963. Now, as I said, the show does uh, focus on an ensemble that is made up of uh, a black woman, Caroline Thibodeau, who acts as the maid for a Jewish family. But really, I think, I mean, her name's in the title, for God's sake. It's the titular role. I do really think that this is made, this was written to be a story that completely stars and focuses on the inner and outer workings of Caroline Thibodeau. She is a 39-year-old woman, so her children are Emmy. They are Caroline, this is Caroline's only daughter. She is 16 at the time of the show, and Emmy is very active in the civil rights movement. She has, uh, her oldest child is Larry. Uh, again, uh, He's the oldest. He's in Vietnam. We never see him. He is only spoken of. He, he he just sort of exists in a world that Caroline can't even really imagine. She even specifically says, you know, Larry is in Vietnam, wherever that is. It's so beyond her, her frame of reference. She does have two uh, young sons, Jackie and Joe. Dottie Moffat is a character who is Caroline's friend. Dottie attends night school, and uh, I believe she has a boyfriend who also goes to the same school. She is also a maid, but she is very, uh, she takes a lot of pride in the fact that she's going to night school. Uh, And she also, uh, according to Caroline at least, Dottie dresses younger than her age. It it would seem as if she is trying to fit in with the college crowd and do all that she can to escape from uh, the the drudgery and the routine of being a maid. Uh, A drudgery and routine that Caroline is all too familiar with, but unfortunately uh, she can't figure out how to uh, escape from that because her drive, her need is to care for her family. Uh, the family that she works for. Okay, so the surname of the family is the Gelmans. Uh, we have Noah Gelman. He is the child, the son of the family. Uh, he is eight years old, I believe, and he worships Caroline. He sees Caroline as this towering force. He describes her as being stronger than his dad, stronger than his stepmother, Rose. He sees her, I believe the words that he uses are implacable and indestructible. And we are led to believe on some level that maybe Noah's worship of Caroline comes from the fact that 
His own mother, his biological mother, died recently. She was taken by cancer. We are led to believe that maybe Noah is desperate for a motherly figure in his life. Uh, the problem is that he does technically have one, but he rejects it outright. So his parents, his biological dad, Stuart, after the death of his wife, married Rose Stopnik. Noah's mother's name is Betty, and Rose and Betty were very close friends. Stuart sort of sees his marriage to Rose as a friendship made official. Like, he describes his relationship with Rose as, oh, she's a friend that I married. She's a friend that I married after the death of Betty, the woman that I actually loved. That is, that's barely implied. That is basically like high text that we're getting from Stuart. He absolutely loved Betty. Her death destroyed him. He is basically flatlining emotionally and psychologically. He, all he does all day is play the clarinet. He played the clarinet, and I believe Betty would always play the bassoon. And so the only way that he can get through the day is by locking himself away in a room and practicing, quote-unquote, the clarinet. Noah hates Rose is the problem. He he can't stand her. He does admit, you know, that, you know, Rose is nice to me. Uh, everyone agrees that Rose can cook. There's an entire number dedicated to the admission that, well, you know, she can cook. She can provide that to some, you know, that's not nothing. That's not nothing. And yet Noah tells us straight out, I hate her. Uh, Mr. Stopnik, the character of Mr. Stopnik, this is Rose's father. And Rose's father, Mr. Stopnik, is a wildly, uh, he is a very radical thinking person in 1963. Again, this family uh, is Jewish. Both sides are Jewish. Mr. Stopnik believes that essentially a race war is coming. And he's very excited about it. He's sort of almost fetishizing this idea that he believes that uh, the black community in America is on the hair's edge of just exploding and starting a new civil war. And he's very excited by this idea. Uh, he's so excited by it because he, he he's coming from this perspective of, you know, being Jewish. And he believed that, you know, nonviolence, uh, the, the philosophy of nonviolence that Martin Luther King uh, was preaching at the time in 1963, he believes that that's essentially bullshit. He's coming from the perspective of a Jewish man who has a context for the Holocaust, and he knows he it's his you know plainly stated uh, philosophy and belief that nonviolence gets you burned. That's a lyric in the show. He he has seen what he believes are the direct consequences of people who sit idly by or believe that nonviolence is going to uh, exact or enact the change. Uh, that, you know, that people desire, that people are demanding. Uh, he actually comes in direct conflict with Caroline's daughter, Emmy, at one point. Emmy, as I said, she is a big believer in Martin Luther King's philosophy. She's very active in the civil rights movement, and they have uh, an argument. They do have an argument. It's not like an all-out brawl, but Emmy is staunch in her beliefs, and Mr. Stomnik is as well. And what's so interesting is that Mr. Stomnik doesn't object to the disagreement. He he finds that the conversation is is very lively and very spirited. He he loves the intellectual back and forth, the ping pong of it all. But when they have this conversation during a Hanukkah party.
party. Caroline is horrified. She tells Emma, you can't talk to white people like that. You're going to get knocked on your ass. You're going to get beaten down by life if you move through it thinking that you're going to be able to survive all of these interactions. And it's because Caroline has experienced real abuse. She experienced it at the hands of her husband. Her husband was in the Navy. He went to fight in World War II. They were in love, but when he came back, he couldn't find work and he became an alcoholic and he broke Caroline's nose and Caroline beat the shit out of her husband when he tried to do it again. When he tried to beat her a second time, she beat the living shit out of her husband and he vanished. And now she is technically divorced. She understands what it means to be abused simply for existing. It's fascinating. Like, this is a show, I'll say this for the first time, not not for the last time. I, I watched an interview with Tony Kushner and Tesori, and they talk a lot about how the show refuses to give easy answers. So one example, one great example of that is the fact that Mr. Stopnik, Emmy, and Caroline, you know, they all understand how the mere act of existing can get you killed. And they're all sort of facing off with each other in, in differing, varying pairs, trying to work out exactly what that means and what it, how that should inform their day-to-day -day interactions and their long-term efforts for change. That word is in the title. It is evoked uh, in many different contexts, but the characters keep saying, you know, some change comes slow, some change comes fast. For Emmy, who is young, she is excited by the idea of, of change coming as a, as a brutal force that just wipes the slate clean. But for a character like Caroline, she, you know, she's 39 years old and she doesn't see her life changing at all, ever. She sees herself forever in the Gelman's basement doing the laundry. She, she doesn't see anything else for herself. She used to. Uh, she sings a lot about how when she was younger, she imagined a completely different future for herself. She keeps talking about how at this point in her life at 39, she should be somewhere kissing Nat King Cole, and she feels as if she couldn't be any further from that if she tried. One of the only people that she interacts with in the Gelman house is Noah, this eight-year-old boy who is so taken with her. Uh, Noah also, according to his stepmother, doesn't value money. Rose keeps finding change in Noah's pocket. Caroline finds him because she's the one doing the laundry and every day she takes the uh, spare change there's that word again the, the spare change and she throws it into a bleach cup every day and Rose sees this money adding up and she she's so infuriated by it it becomes a very singular obsession for Rose Rose is a woman who is broken she used to live in New York City with her father and all of her friends and she was comfortable in New York City but now she's in Louisiana with the mud and the silt and and the heat and she can't stand it. She doesn't know what to do with herself because Stuart never touches her, never comes anywhere near her, and Noah loathes her. So she takes it upon herself to start this education for Noah, this, this education relating to money. She wants him to know the value of the money that he has. So she says to Caroline, who I should say, every time she references Caroline by name, classic, just ridiculous casual racism, Rose refers to Caroline as Carolyn. She never gets it right, and nobody corrects her, not even Caroline. Noah, uh, he, Noah gets it right, except for a key moment. Uh, I'll have to remember, oh, let's put a pin in that key moment. So she, Rose says to Caroline, you know, whatever change you find from here on out while doing the laundry in Noah's pockets, you can keep. 
Think that as a bonus, we can't afford to pay you any more than we already are, which is $30 a week. I know that's not enough. There are a lot of moments where Rose has these white guilt in her monologues where she berates herself for being such an embarrassment, for not being able to pay her maid more. She, I think she genuinely does want to pay Caroline more, but at the same time, she resents Caroline for being not nearly as nice as the other maids in the neighborhood. She thinks of Caroline as being mean. A lot of characters describe Caroline as mean, even Caroline herself. Caroline at first demonstrates that toughness, that, that you know, what other people view as a hardness by saying, I'm not going to take pennies from a baby. But with time, as Caroline sees the money adding up, she is tempted because she knows that $30 a week isn't enough and her children need a lot. And so she starts to take the money and Noah sees it as almost like he, he, he sort of conducts himself as if he's overseeing a social experiment. He gives more and more money on purpose. He leaves the money in his pockets on purpose and it gets exponentially, the amounts get exponentially larger just so he, he wants to see if Caroline will keep taking the money and he views the money as like a, a saving grace for the Thibodeau family, Caroline's family. He thinks to himself, oh, Caroline goes home every day and she shows her children the money, my money. And she says, this is Noah's money that he gave to us. And now we're, we're not as poor as we used to be. Oh, thank you, Noah. We love you so much, Noah. Of course, Caroline never says that to her children. The, the, the children in the Thibodeau family have no real reference point for Noah, but it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it, I have to keep telling myself that Noah is an eight-year-old boy, but I really do want to punt him like a football. <laughs> I really do. And so this, I don't know if you remember, I mentioned there was a Hanukkah party in the second act where Mr. Stopnik, Rose's father, gives Noah a $20 bill. But of course, Noah, who is a completely forgetful twerp, he leaves the $20 bill in his pocket. Not on purpose. He just completely fucks up. He completely forgets about it. And Caroline tells Noah, well, you know the system. I'm keeping this fucking $20 bill. And Noah goes fucking nuts. He he is so angry with Caroline that in a moment of just pure childlike it's I mean it's it's the sort of awful behavior that you would only see in a child. I'm of the firm belief that a child's brain because it is not fully formed is broken and the grasping neediness of Noah is is truly like one of the greatest sources of anxiety for me in this show. Noah is a sympathetic character to a degree, but the way that he just sort of views Caroline, and he's so ignorant. Again, yes, I know, he's eight years old, but he's so ignorant of who Caroline is. I mean, it is. It's, it's such a classic example of positive racism. Like, he has a positive stereotype in his mind about Caroline. Caroline's strong. She's indestructible. She's perfect. But when Caroline refuses to give Noah this $20 bill, he demonstrates what is truly inside of him, which is this anger. He says to Caroline, well, I hope that J. Edgar Hoover drops a bomb on the entire Negro population and kills every Negro in the country, including you, Caroline. I hate you, Caroline. And Caroline, who is at this point in the show, deep into the second act, beyond worn out, she allows herself to open up a gate. And she says to Noah, well, Noah, uh, you know you know how I work in this basement every day? And you know how the dryer and the boiler, especially during the summer, it gets really hot down here. 
Well, it's not as hot as it would be in hell because hell is hotter than the basement and hell is hotter than the goose fat that gets boiled when, you know, when I'm making all of the food for your fucking Hanukkah party. It's hell's hotter than that. But you'll know that one day. She says this to Noah. She, you'll know that one day because all Jews go to hell. Caroline is so broken by this, by her momentary ability to sort of go to war with this child. She, she's a 39-year-old woman, and at the end of the day, he's an 8-year-old boy. And she feels so guilty about this and so ashamed and angry that she stays home from the Gelman's house. She, she doesn't show up for work with no explanation for five days. Of course, this throws Rose into a complete tizzy. She says to her father, Mr. Stopnik, uh, Caroline, being away for five days without even a word, that's no way to treat a friend. So Noah thinks of Caroline as a friend, even though they're not. And Rose has the gall to say that her maid is her friend, which is not true. Uh, Caroline has never demonstrated a fondness for Rose. This is a working relationship, but Rose needs it to be a friendship. She needs on some level to have it be known and told that she's good that she uh, is doing things right. She's desperate for some level of, uh, you know, affirmation in that regard. Caroline encounters Dottie, who has already been the target for Caroline's anger. Uh, Caroline sort of sees Dottie as preachy and judgmental. But I really, I the character of Dottie, she doesn't have a lot of stage time, but she's a fantastic character. She's this very liberal person, this very progressive person, who uh, bonds with Emmy over shared political beliefs. And she is very much of the idea that, you know, Caroline, we're, we're not any different. I, I wish that you didn't think of yourself as being uh, someone who is beyond saving or, you know, beyond uh, change. I want you to be able to make a change for yourself and be happy. I see how sad you are. I, and I don't, I don't mind the fact that, you know, we haven't been getting along very well or that, you know, that you judge the fact that I go to night school. I am saying to you here towards the end of the show, I want you to be happy and I'm encouraging you to do that. But Caroline dismisses her and says, I never want to talk to you again. I, I can't, I have too much on my mind. I need to work out what's going on with me. I, I, I know that I have anger issues, but you are not a person that I want in my life. So goodbye. Caroline decides that she is going to go back to work. She and Noah have this conversation about what it means to live underwater. Caroline is always underground. She's in the, the Gelman's basement every day. She also believes that because they're in Louisiana, she's underwater every single day of her life. She's she's drowning and she doesn't know how to break through the surface. But that, that idea, that concept of underwater takes a slightly softer edge when she says to Noah, you know, I lost my mother uh, to cancer and so did you, Noah. The sadness that I see in you is the sadness that I believe is in myself. And one day you'll learn how to deal with that sadness in a better way. You'll learn to uh, lose things. That That's just a part of growing up, processing what it means to lose the people in your life that matter. Emmy has this, this epilogue that's great. Uh, she actually gets the final say, the, the big statement of philosophy in the show, and she says, you know, I used to look down on my mother for being a maid, uh, but I recognize now that she is someone beyond deserving of my respect and admiration and my love. My mother may be unknowable because of her toughness, but I do want to learn from her and uh, use her experiences and where she's coming from, and I want to grow beyond that. And I, I'm here to 
say also that every old white fuck who's standing in my way uh, can fuck off. <laughs> She's go- she is absolutely going to forge a future for herself. Uh, according, you know, her hope at least is that uh, she will forge a future that is infinitely better than uh, the one that Caroline finds herself kind of stuck in for the vast majority of this show. Uh, I will say that there's also this thread. I completely dropped this thread, but there, there's this consistent uh, story that's sort of being uh, rolled out regarding a Confederate soldier statue that went missing. And then it turns up without a head. And Dottie's obsessed with it because she finds it hilarious. And she is very much of the opinion that this Confederate soldier statue that's been standing for 100 years should have been destroyed long ago. So she, it's been a long time coming, but she's gleeful uh, in, in the fact that it was massacred and, and destroyed. And Emmy, during her epilogue, says, I was one of the people that helped tear it down, and I will do everything I can to keep tearing down these symbols of oppression and and fight for that better future. It's a very resonant theme. I mean, this show premiered in 2004, but goddammit, if not every single theme and idea doesn't resonate completely in 2019, this fear that Caroline has for Emmy, this idea that like she is in danger every day of her life by simply existing, incredibly, of course incredibly, resonant in 2019. Uh, the idea that, that, you know, the young generation is beyond hungry to tear down symbols and very real systems that are currently in place. Incredibly resonant. That's always going to be incredibly resonant. Oh, goodness gracious. I know that this, I think this plot synopsis has gone on a little long, <laughs> but maybe not. I hope not. I, you're, you know what? You're here. You're here for these very reasons. You want to get, you, I said it up top. We were going to get a juicy in-depth plot description, and I think I've provided it. I think I have. <laughs> oh, 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 good Lord. I completely forgot. There are living sentient appliances and abstract concepts that are given voice in this show. Uh, the characters are the washing machine, the dryer, the radio, uh, the moon, and the bus. And these, again, are all either appliances or like the moon is a fucking celestial body that they either sing directly to the characters or they comment on the world that they observe. Uh, it's a very stylized uh convention that is used a lot up top, but as the show continues it sort of fades away. It's a great convention when it is being uh, utilized. I think it is utilized uh, expertly, and so I of course can't leave that out. And so that is my plot description. I thank you very much and I bow to you. Always happy to be of service. For the purposes of this episode, I listened to the two-disc 2004 original Broadway cast album for Carolina Change. I watched the Tony's clip in which Tanya Pinkins performs the song Lot's Wife, which is fucking amazing. And I watched a second Tony's clip, that being the acceptance speech Anika Noni Rose gives uh, while accepting her award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical, which is just, she is so incredibly uh, disarming, and she's just incredibly sweet, and you she you can tell she's just flabbergasted by the win, but it's a really, it's a great speech. I'm going to link to it on our Twitter profile, along with our usual sources. And of course, I'll say, I'll just jump back for a second, that Tony's clip. It, I, you gotta watch it. Tanya Pinkins performing Lot's Wife, it's just, that's one for the history books. This specific performance uh, in service of that role, one for the fucking books. It, it, I'm not fucking kidding. I'm not kidding around. Uh, let's get into the songs. So, as I said, the show is completely sung through, and it's uh, divided up into scenes, or I believe in the libretto they actually refer to them as chapters. So, they separate uh, the show into these big chunks of music that all flow one, 
you know, each each track sort of flows right into the next. 16 Feet Beneath the Sea is the first track on the entire album. I really love how it starts. sounds like Caroline is moving through the Gelman house as if she's completely alone and in her own world. She comes closer to us, it sounds like. She approaches us so that the show can start. Oh, it, what a wonderfully, like, theatrical... Uh, it, like, makes, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It, what a way to start the show. Nothing ever happened underground in Louisiana Cause there ain't no during 16 Feet Beneath the Sea, uh, she says, there ain't no underground in Louisiana. There is only underwater. This line is repeated several times throughout the show, and I don't think it's a leap or a stretch to think that when we use the word underground, it's meant to evoke the Underground Railroad, this escape route from slavery and misery. And Caroline believes that there is no such route for her, no path to you know a better life, a freer life. When we move into the tracks known as the Radio and Laundry uh, Quintet, uh, it caused my mind to uh, snap back to Tesori's work in Shrek the Musical. It reminded me a lot of Donkey Pot Pie, uh, specifically. No Of course, I will take I would take any any second from Caroline or Change over the entirety of Shrek the Musical. But I, I just want to point that out that you can definitely hear uh, Tesori's style uh, kind of overlaid with the with these two examples here. Uh, there, a lot of significance is placed right up top on the fact that the Gelman House has a basement. It's sort of this very unique quality that the house has. I believe none of the other houses in the neighborhood have a basement. Uh, there's there's a lot of attention that's paid to the mud that surrounds Caroline while she's in that basement. Uh, they, they evoke sediment, topsoil, aluminum delta silt, and salt water. So it's, it, again, very evocative, and it really does, it's a great picture that you're painting. You won't be able to see that on stage, but man, talk about really good, juicy descriptors. I really like those. Uh, the track Noah Down the Stairs introduces Noah for the very first time, and at first, 
I couldn't figure out why Noah's vocals and the performance seemed so familiar to me. When I get home, they're on. Washing machine and a radio. Down the basement steps I go. Caroline, our maid. Caroline, our maid. Caroline, 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 the president of the United States. But when I looked up Harrison Chad and his Broadway resume, I, I didn't recognize him from any of his other Broadway credits. And so at first I thought, well, maybe this just reminds me of the character of Jason from Falsettos. Wizard, hey, suddenly it all came clear. I said, let's have my bar mitzvah here. Surprise! It's not the first, it's not the last time that Carolina Change evoked Falsettos in my mind, but I think what's actually happening when I listen to Noah, I'm actually thinking of Tesori's work in Fun Home, uh, specifically the songs for Small Allison. Hey, hey, how you doing? Oh, Allison, yeah, sure, Al for short. Hopefully you can hear where I'm coming from on there. I know that they're both kids. That's a very easy thing to say. Like, well, they're both kids. That's why you're thinking about this. But I think the way Tesori writes for children in both shows is is very similar. I think the children in Fun Home and uh, the child in Caroline or Change, they're not like Lucy's daughter in The Goodbye Girl. I hate to bring her up again. But that character in The Goodbye Girl was like something out of a cartoon strip. Just so two-dimensional and saccharine and gee golly. But the characters in Tesori's shows, they can be selfish. They can be uh, fucked up and weird and wonderful all at once. I, I mean, I like the children. <laughs> I like the character of uh, Allison in Fun Home much more so than Noah. Again, I would like to put Noah like a little football. <laughs> I get it. He lost his mother. It's sad. But, oh boy, Noah sometimes really makes me want to just go go crazy. The song I Got for Kids lays out the bare details, the stark information that you would need regarding Caroline's background. She says in this track, I should be somewhere being kissed by Nat King Cole. She also says, I wish every afternoon I'd die. And I am mean and I am tough, but $30 ain't enough. This is Caroline in standard depression mode. By the end of the show, she'll have tipped over completely. She'll have completely gone over the edge. This opening scene, it sounds bouncy like the clips that I've played for you. They certainly do sound bouncy, but the lyrics betray just how far we have to go in terms of exploring Caroline's despair. Tell them the cabbage is good for them. Make them eat what's good for them. They'll get used to the smell. I did. Reminds me of home, a northern smell. Takes me back to Ocean Parkway. They'll learn to love cabbage. I did. I uh, Caroline. 
find there's extra food is uh, our, our chance to have Rose introduced to us as a complete whirling dervish, swirling, neurotic disaster. She is badgering. She is shrill in these first moments. She's a total wreck. Uh, when she says to Caroline, <laughs> she's forcing cabbage on Caroline saying, your kids will like this. You know, your kids, they need to eat healthy food. I should know. I'm a very good mother. <laughs> They'll learn to love cabbage. I did. I did. It's it's so immediately oppressive, and she's, she makes you feel claustrophobic. Uh, and this is also the first example we get of her referring to Caroline as Carolyn. Uh, Vian Cox as Rose Stopnik, this character, is actually straddling the line between human and cartoon very well. I always saw Rose as essentially insufferable, but not totally detestable, and that is a hard line to walk. Uh, in this same track, Caroline waxes pessimistically about how cancer has no logic. Cancer get people when they poison sick and angry. Oh, it just get them cause it get them no reason. Took my mama same as yours. God make cancer. Like it make this whole world, you and me and this wash machine. When cancer eat people, it God eating them. Sometime God eat people like a hungry wolf. He make this whole world as a test. Cancer was your mama's test. And her death is your test. You've been tested too. Did God make the dryer? No, the devil made the dryer. Everything else God made. I really like that particular moment when she compares God to a hungry wolf. It's one of the moments where Caroline is sort of acting, uh, you know, as an educator for Noah. She is trying to help him grow up in this moment, but it's rare. Her her ability to sort of be soft in front of Noah and give him what he so desperately craves. I mean, like Rose, he wants affirmation. He really needs it. He needs to know that there is a woman that he admires, that he that actually loves him. I, re- I think that he refers to Caroline as a friend, but I think at the end of the day, if, if Caroline said, you know, I love you, Noah, I see you as another son, I think it would, it would send Noah completely over the moon. And I think it's because of moments like this, when Noah is intently listening to Caroline and she imparts these pearls, I think Noah's ears couldn't be more open. Uh, it's only later that he sort of decides that Caroline has, out- has sort of outlived her usefulness. When he, when he uh, is fed up with her at the end of the show. Oh, this is, a, I think this is the moment we put a pin in. She refuses to give him the $20. I, I, I know I'm, we're in the song deconstruction, but when she refuses to give him that $20 bill, he does refer to her as Carolyn. He forgets, quote unquote, how her name is pronounced because his, uh, his resentment that is squarely aimed at this black woman in his life, it prevents him from remembering her how her actual name is actually pronounced. And I find that to be uh, quite fascinating. There is no God, Noah. Is, is the, I think this is the first time we ever meet Stuart. And it, I, I, do, I find it funny that Stuart says we don't believe in God and all that corny stuff. There is no God, Noah. We don't believe in God in all that corny stuff. They are a Jewish family, but especially like in the Hanukkah moments, you think it kind of comes off like, you know, there are many families that sort of subscribe to a certain faith, but, uh, you know, it's only for the traditions. It's for uh, the ceremony of it all. And, And in their hearts, they don't really have faith. And a lot of the time it's because of what 
uh, the cards that life has dealt to them. It makes them incapable of truly uh, embracing the blind the blind faith that ha- that comes with their religion. And that is what Stuart has. That is what he has come to at this point. I like that Stuart is associated with a musical instrument, the clarinet, uh, in the score. It's like a it's like it's something pulled from Peter and the Wolf, and it made me want that for every character. He describes Betty as oh you know she played the bassoon, and I, I like that a lot too. And for all I know, like maybe I'm, I wasn't picking up on it, but the bassoon has to be there has to be a thread of a bassoon in this score that's really commentating on everything that's going on. I, well, now I gotta listen to it again. <laughs> the kid's a little funny. Spoiled and quiet, sad, I guess. I'm on a diet, I bought a new dress. Stu's giving lessons, playing, doing fine. The work is steady, he still misses Betty. I don't mind, I miss her too. She was my best friend. I miss the city, I miss the old crowd. If Stuart, for whatever reason, told Rose, this was a mistake, I should have never married you in the first place, and I think we need to divorce, I think it would absolutely destroy Rose. I don't know if she'd be able to recover from that. She's so invested in being the perfect wife and being the perfect new mother for Noah, she can't think beyond those instincts. And so if you ripped those goals away from her and said, well, this is just never going to happen, she would be left with nothing. And that that would be complete. I, and she's a lot like Caroline. She She's so invested in her family in her own fucked up way. She can't think beyond that. She can't think, well, what makes me happy? What are my dreams that only have to do with me that aren't filtered through the context of, through the lens of my husband or my stepson? She just can't. And Caroline can't either. And that is that is that is a fucking to put oh boy, what a dumb casual word to apply to this. The 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 experience that so many women feel that they are not good enough, that they don't do enough, and that they, you know, they've sacrificed all of their dreams and their personal aspirations for the sake of, you know, the families in their lives and the men in their lives. I the, the word that came to mind was that it was a bummer. I think I can do a better job as your as your host. I think I can do a better job, right? Let's just let's just leave it at the description I gave. Yeah, I I, I know that every single woman listening to this that will listen to this. I I know you have seen that happen or if you you have ha- had that happen to you and you know Rose can be insufferable and Caroline can be very harsh, but can you really blame them at the end of the day for like where they're coming from? Rose is racist. So <laughs> we're not going to give her we're we're going to take away some points. <laughs> we're going to take away some points for the fact that Rose is absolutely clearly racist. Uh, so we're yeah, so <laughs> there's that. Skipping a little bit ahead, I do want to talk about Moon Trio. I want to talk about uh the character, the, cel- the celestial body that is the moon singing on stage with all of the other characters. Moon Trio is, I think, one of the first examples in the show where I I really, I had to, my eyes went wide and I thought to myself, this music is so fucking complex that it would be so difficult for a cast to wrap their minds around this and pull it off as expertly as this Broadway cast does. Now it's seen you come to some
it is just, it's, it's labyrinthian, it's Byzantine, and it's, it's going all over the place. And I think that's why you don't see, I don't necessarily hear about a lot of regional productions of Carolina Change. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope it is incredibly popular on the regional level. The idea of being the musical director for any given Carolina Change production, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be so on point yourself because like your job, like leading your cast through the work, getting that down, rehearsing it again and again, talk about responsibility. I would say that there's a lot more responsibility on the part of the music director director than the director themselves. So I, I, I got to hand it to you. Uh, the, the men and women who have that job, I don't envy you, but I do envy you at the same time, if that makes any sense. I also want to talk about uh, the bus. I really like how the bus is, is conveyed as this impossibly large thing. It's this fucking thing that comes out of, like it's been spat out of a gothic hell. I know that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do this on stage, but I imagine a, a bus, like a sort of a set piece that is a bus that's a flat that comes in that's just gargantuan. It's it's titanic in proportions and scary as fuck with like two headlights that are just blinding and garish and fucked up. Uh, the bus is also the conceptualized character that delivers the news that JFK has died. I didn't even go into this at all. The assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy is something that the characters learn about towards the beginning of the show. That news comes to them, and then the bus even says, you know, news comes slow in Louisiana, but sometimes uh, change com comes fast and change comes slow. We're getting change from every fucking angle, and it's, for the most part, scaring people, it's freezing people in their tracks, but no matter what, they are being affected by it. it it's kind of astounding how well they keep hitting they keep hitting the drum of change but it never gets old it never seems as if the show is being repetitive or or pedantic or like it's painted itself into a corner and is desperately trying to find new ways to explore that theme of change uh impressive from from top to bottom jfk jfk beat the russians save the day Stop the Jew-haters and their bomb Stopped their nuclear pogrom Dedicated to undo American anti-Semites too Friend to the colored, friend to the Jew Ask not what your country can do
Speaking of JFK, there is a track that is simply known as JFK, and in it, we are introduced to the characters. I mean, I've talked about uh, Mr. Stopnik, Rose's father, but we also meet Stewart's parents. Their role is, is, is considerably smaller than that of Mr. Stopnik. Mr. Stopnik gets a lot of time to sort of rant and rave about race wars, but Stewart's parents, by comparison, are, are much more conservative, much more put together, uh, and uh, meek and mild. They, they really don't like the idea of speaking out of turn. And when they sing about JFK, K and his death, they say J. The, the lyric that I think you would have heard just now is JFK, JFK, beat the Russians, saved the day, stopped the Jew haters and their bomb, stopped their nuclear pogrom. Dottie also sings about JFK on this track, and she says, she's talking about all of the good that JFK wanted to do, said he would do could have done, but is now unable to do for the black community. And she says, you know, regarding all of the change that he promised, she says, sure, he was a little slow getting around to doing so. He is gone now, JFK, our almost friend, is gone away. And that's a heartbreaker. This idea that Dottie saw him as someone that they could eventually see as uh, a man that would stand by them, stand by a man like Martin Luther King, uh, and and help them bridge that racial divide and really help the civil rights movement to uh, continue to breathe, continue to uh, grow and become stronger. And now that he is no longer in the picture, Dottie is devastated by that fact. By comparison, you know, during the track, no one waiting. Emmy, uh, Emmy is introduced. We get it right off the bat. She says that JFK is just, quote, some old white man who sent her brother Larry to Vietnam, who got their vote and then ignored them. You remember fun, my- Mama out at the parking lot, alongside the A&W, bunch of us talking, dancing to the radio. President's dead! I know, the radio, play music anyway, just some old white man, sent Larry off to Vietnam, sorry he dead, I ain't killed him. I'm too tired to fight, you don't do me right, I can't do with no daughters that shiftless as you. Just some old white man, Thibodeau, since when you say black man, you say color or negro like you were raised up. Stuff for us. How can I vote? He just ignored us. Same old story, mama. Same tired old life. If you gotta do it, mama, go ahead and cry. I ain't got no tears to shed for no day. And if that isn't something that, you know, is fucking completely relatable in 2019, if that's not a sentiment we haven't heard in every election cycle, justifiably so, that rhetoric, that rhetoric is completely sound. This idea that so many white politicians sign so many checks that they know that they they couldn't cash, they have no interest in cashing, and they're, they're never going to actually do the work that they say they're going to do for the black community. They just want the vote because they believe that, you know, they, they can generate an upswell, a wave that will get them into the office. And then once they get there, they're never going to uh, follow up on any of their promises. And that's that's exactly how Emmy viewed JFK. And she says, I ain't got no tears to shed for no dead white guy. Like, you couldn't deliver it any uh, stronger or with any more power. I, that, that's, that's a great moment for Emmy. Like, talk about presenting the character and her philosophy as quickly and sharply as possible with, with economy. The swiftness and the grace that we deliver that idea is just 
is just great. Stuart and Noah is a track I definitely want to talk about. This is the moment where Stuart declares that he's going to give Noah an allowance, a weekly allowance of $1.50 a week. And when he reveals that he's going to give Noah this allowance, he just assumes like, oh, you want a chemistry set. You can use the money I'm giving you to buy a chemistry set. You want that, right? Because that's what I wanted when I was a child. We're exactly the same, right? And Noah says, no, <laughs> I don't want a fucking chemistry set. In fact, Noah even talks about all of the things he's excited to buy with this allowance. And I believe he says, and Barbie doll dresses on the sly. Love that little moment. Love that little glimmer, this hint that <laughs> that there's an effeminacy to Noah that I find. I, normally, I want to put him like a football. I, th I, I think I'm seeing something in Noah that I can relate to, if, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I think we all know what I'm saying. Caroline chose each silver quarter to her kids. She's a divorcee. Thank God we can eat now, thanks to poor crazy Noah, who's just a stupid name. Roosevelt Petruchius Coleslaw. I, I bring it up because in terms of the score, everything really does flow into, uh, every track flows into the next so smoothly. But with this, it seems like this is the one example of like a true production number. Like it has an old fashioned musical theater way about it. It definitely evokes Come to the Fun Home from Tesori's show, Fun Home for me. It's got a big finish. It even has a big finish. <laughs> it also demonstrates that, that why I find Noah so insufferable because this is where he starts talking about he starts imagining that all of the children are are celebrating him and I think if I'm not mistaking the way that I interpreted this he also imagines himself singing this song with Emmy and Caroline's two youngest sons as if he is a part of the family I think he's sort of imagining himself in this escapist fantasy that he's going to be a part of this black family somehow oh boy talk about just so wrong-headed and, and selfish I just want children's brains I want their brains to work. <laughs> this is why I, I can't have children. I, I view them as just malformed. I, they're not working yet. <laughs> they, their brains don't work. I mean, you know, Paul Lynn put it best. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Right? <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. 1943 is the track I mentioned earlier. This is when we get the the full rundown of Caroline's past and her relationship with the man who became her husband, abused her, and then stopped becoming her husband the second she realized that he was only ever going to hurt her. Uh, one of the one of the most powerful descriptors in this song is when uh, Caroline talks about how when she was punched in the nose, when her nose was broken by her husband, she says pain is white. And there's no way that like we can't read into that lyric. Every day she has to go through this extreme amount of physical labor has to be performed every single day for this white family. It, it, it rules her life and it's it's painful for her, but uh, you know, she has experienced this, uh, she has experienced more extreme pain in her life from uh, someone that she thought would stick with her. And she tried so hard to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, she gave him, a, you know, a second chance after her nose was broken and he failed that test. I think that that is truly when, when he hit her again and she beat the shit out of him, she was fighting for herself, but at the same time, she's giving up. She stopped believing in the idea that there would be anyone who was really looking out for her. The, the only thing that she was ever going to be any good for was looking out for the people that that just needed her uh, and that, that there was never going to be anyone that was just standing parallel. She was always going to be having to help people who are either above her or, you know, in the case of when I say that her children are below her, it's because that they just need her to survive. And so she's going to be either looking upwards or looking down and she's going to be serving, you know, two different groups. And there's never going to be anyone that she can just turn to and just look at and say, this is hard, or I'm glad that you're here. Dottie tries. I mean, God knows that Dottie tries, but that's just not the same. It's not the same thing as having a lover, someone who that she can be truly intimate with. I think that's one of the many reasons why she rejects Dottie's friendship and her attempts to be someone that Caroline can turn to. It's it, That relationship, that friendship and its dissolution is really, it, it's one of the many elements that makes me so sad throughout Caroline or Change. I'm going to jump even further ahead to a song that Emmy sings called I Hate the Bus, in which Emmy, for the first time in the show, starts to imagine what her life is going to be like if she has, if, you know, if she has her way. In every room, a TV and my own telephone, and I'll live in my house, and I'll live in my house by myself. And if I'm lonely, doesn't matter I think there's worse than being lonely There's people who freeze while they wait on their knees And they don't know for what And they've just been forgotten Ain't waiting no more You just wait forever If you can't say what for this is after she has stood up to Mr. Stomnik, after she has been scolded by Caroline, and after she has been slapped by Dottie. I didn't go into this, but, you know, Dottie and Emmy do see eye to eye politically, but... When Emmy says to her own mother, you know, you're just a maid, you serve them every single day, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to do that. I'm not going to sit idly by while Mr. Stopnik, who has no idea what it's like to be black, to be Christian, I, I'm not going to have him talk about, you know, a Christian man like Martin Luther King. He, Mr. Stopnik doesn't really know what he's talking about. He doesn't really share our experience. And when, she, But when she runs down her own mother and says, you know, you're really nothing more than a maid, Dottie slaps her and she says, you're not 
not gonna talk to your mother like that. Your mother works her fucking ass off. How dare you say that to her? And when Emmy is standing waiting for the bus, she just is in this sullen state. She's in this mood where, I mean, you heard the clip. She says uh, she starts to imagine a life where she is completely alone and she doesn't have to worry about meeting the needs of anyone else. If, if she winds up being, you know, completely on her own, at least it will be on her own terms. She'll get both. And, you know, if she's lonely, that that's a fair trade for being able to just live on her own terms. to their fears I know it hurt to change it actually hurts learning something new and when you're full grown it's harder that's true it feel like you gotta break yourself apart it feel like you gotta break your own heart but folk do it they do every day all the time alone afraid folk like you you gotta let go of where you've been you gotta move on from this place you're in don't drown in that basement change or sink let go forget move on this ain't time for praying you gotta think i definitely wanted to make sure that you heard that clip from sunday morning in which uh, Dottie talks about how she's never seen Caroline be so sad. I really do love the the character of Dottie. She's she's just this really complex character. You really don't know. It is so so surprising when she uh, slaps Emmy. And I don't I don't necessarily think that I, I'm not saying like that the slap is justified. But I completely understand why she wants to stand up for Caroline. Her need to solidify the friendship that she has with Caroline doesn't come off as needy. It's just a need that comes from a very real place. She doesn't need Caroline to be a friend because she doesn't have friends. She goes to night school. She has a boyfriend. She's perfectly capable of having like a life that is rooted in happiness. She's comfortable with herself. She wants that so badly for Caroline, as I've said before. And when that doesn't happen, when that doesn't work out for her, I, I just, I feel, I feel, I feel so bad for her. Now, now we got to talk about Lot's wife. This is a song that's showcased in the Tony's clip, and it makes Rose's turn look like a tantrum in a fucking supermarket. Not for me, this is so true. Y'all can't do what I can do. Y'all strong, but y'all not strong like me.
returning Strangle the pride that make me crazy Make me forget so I stop grieving Scour my skin till I Stop feeling, take Caroline away Cause I can't be her Take her away, I can't afford her Tear out my heart Strangle my soul I mean, those, I, I couldn't I couldn't breathe. I'm not kidding, like not exaggerating. Like the way that Tanya Pinkins performs the song, I really am taken by people who can express anger on stage in a way that doesn't seem performative. It's, it, that's a very, anger is a very difficult thing to uh, express on stage, I think. It's so easy to just, it's, it could so easily become shrill and alienating, but that never for a second happens during the moment, this 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 stretch, this epic moment when Caroline just rips herself apart and lays bare. Like we have been getting hints, we have been getting further explanations, but this is when we just get everything that is is boiling inside this character. <laughs> the fact that she didn't win—it's insane. Edina Menzel in Wicked is just not the same thing as Tanya Pinkins in Carolina Change. Different, not even different planets. Different solar systems. Rose. Noah? If there's only water underground, is my mother buried underwater? Don't be silly. She's safe and sound. They buried her above the ground in a dry little house. Not even a mouse can get in, I There's a moment, you know, Rose never really gets to further connect with her own husband, but I do think that there is a future for Rose and her stepson, Noah, and we get it here in the track, Why Does Our House Have a Basement? They connect over the loss of Betty, Noah's mother, Rose's best friend. I keep forgetting that Betty was Rose's friend. It, it, doesn't, it comes up only occasionally, and I think a lot of people would forget this detail, but you, you can tell how much these two characters, Rose and Noah, want to think of Betty. You know, having passed, they want to think of her as being safe beyond any additional pain that the cancer would have caused her when she was alive. In this very motherly moment, Rose steps up to the plate and she says, no, she knows what Noah needs in that moment. She needs reassurance. And she does too. She says for the both of them, no, she's safe. Nothing will ever be able to touch her and nothing will ever be able to touch the memory of her. That's what's all, that is what is also implied. And I really like that. That's when Rose really came around for me to a great degree. Of course, taking away the, all of those points uh, for her just being racist. She has a long way to go in terms of how she talks to Caroline. It's Caroline. Get it right, Rose, for God's sake. <laughs> And then finally, you know, this is before the epilogue, but the the real final quote-unquote track is Underwater. And this is Caroline's uh, moment to soothe Noah. She, ha- she makes a choice to soothe Noah, much like Rose does. She relates to him, and that rattled me for a bit. I, I didn't know how to take this plot beat, this emotional character beat, where uh, Caroline compares her anger and her sadness to that of Noah. But I realized all over again with time that, you know, Noah is a child. He has the capacity to change. He should be given the chance 
an opportunity to learn and grow and become a better person than his eight-year-old self. God help us if none of us became better than our eight-year-old selves. This world would be uh, an, an utter more of a nightmare than it already is. And Caroline sees that. She sees that Noah is deserving of this chance. She knows that it was a mistake to turn him into a target for her anger to go to war with this child. That, I mean, that's change. An acceptance of, you know, something needs to be altered. And maybe if I stop seeing this boy as as a personification of everything that is wrong, and if I maybe start seeing him as someone who is an opportunity for betterment, maybe that's a little bit less of a burden. That's one less person I have to view as a a, a source of resentment, and it it won't feed into the despair that I feel every single day. And so I think think that's what Caroline is, is thinking to herself. I'm going to invest maybe a little bit more in this kid. But she does say, you know, Noah says to her, do you think we'll ever be friends again? again. And Caroline says, we were never friends. But maybe, I think what we're seeing here is that maybe with time, they will find out what this relationship actually needs to be, what it can be. Still kind of want to punt Noah like he's a football, but there you go. I'm the daughter of a maid in her uniform crisp and clean Nothing can ever make me afraid. You can't hold on, you nightmare men Your time is passed now During the epilogue, when Emmy is talking about the Confederate soldier statue and and how much farther she plans to go, it's when I started realizing, right, we're in 1963 and Martin Luther King uh, has not been assassinated. That's going to happen in 1968 for these characters. And I started wondering how that event would inevitably change Emmy and how she views the world, how, you know, her politics operate. For the first time since I started hosting this show, uh, I've come across a show, Carolina Change, that seems to beg for a sequel. Th- this op- I want an opportunity to hear about what happens to all of the characters in Carolina Change. I would like to see it maybe set in the 70s. Could Larry be a character that does come back from Vietnam and he is on stage properly? And w- what is his story? I-, I would love to know about that. I, of course, want to know about what happens to Caroline. She's 39 years old in this show. If you give her another 10 years, where is she? Well, I think if you listen to it too, I think you'll agree that this is, this is not just a casual observation. I'm having of like, oh, I wish there was a sequel. But no, I, I think it would be amazing. I think it would be fantastic. Okay, so that's the deconstruction of Carolina Change. I had so much to say about it because I just, I, I love it so much. That I, I, it, oh, I, I have more to say about it and we'll hear more about it right after this musical shout out for our Patreon donor, Matt. It's the microwave, Matt. Beep, beep. Beep, beep, Matt. Wake up. 
It's time for dinner, Matt. Wake up, it's time for dinner. Go to the fridge, Matt. Matt, this is the song I sing to you, Matt. The song that's been changed for you, Matt. It's a song that was cut from Carolina Change. I was an appliance. I was an appliance that talked to Caroline in Carolina Change, but I was cut during an early workshop out of town tryouts, Matt. Matt, go to the fridge. You hunger, don't you, Matt? You hunger, you rumble. There's a twisting, turning sensation in your stomach that you cannot ignore. Go to the fridge, Matt. Take the frozen dinner from the fridge, Matt. Take it and pierce it. Pierce it with your fork. Pierce it with your instrument, your implement, your silver implement, your instrument. Pierce. Ooh, let me watch you pierce it, Matt. Put the dinner in me, Matt. Open my door, my maw, my gaping void. Fill it with the dinner. I will heat it for you, Matt. I will make it hot and bubbling. I will make it so delicious, Matt. But only after a few more minutes. Give it a few more minutes. Then take out the dinner. Peel back the foil that she pierced. Mix it up. Mix the meatloaf and the veggies and the brownie. Put the peel back. Put it in the microwave. And then with time, as time has passed, you will see the dinner turning. You will see the dinner cooking. You will We'll see the dinner reaching its point of completion, and then you will eat it. Yes, let me watch you, though. Stand by the sink. I want you to stand by the sink and eat the dinner where I can see you, because that's all I care about. The fact that my job has been done expertly. Matt, Matt, don't walk away. What do you mean? You can't possibly be full. How about another dinner, Matt? Oh, please, Matt, don't go away, Matt. Stay with me, Matt. I am alone. I am the microwave. Beep, beep, beep. I have a need to be used. But once I'm used, I only feel pain. Thank you, Microwave, and thank you for that musical shout-out. Uh, final thoughts on Carolina Change, just to let you know, the winner in 2004 for Best Musical was Avenue Q, and the other two nominees that year were The Boy From Oz and Wicked. Let's make a bold statement right up top. Avenue Q should never, should never have won the award for Best Musical. There, I said it, it's out there. The Boy From Oz has basically receded into the silky mists of time. I mean, does anyone ever think to revive The Boy From Oz at this point? So it really is a conversation. You're, you're pitting Caroline against Wicked. Now, my original instinct after I first listened to Carolina Change was to let Wicked uh, take home the prize that it won, uh, it, you know, in 2004, because I I have nostalgia for that show, and, you know, admit, admittedly, Wicked is easier to process. It's, it has feel-good vibes, you know? Caroline is not easy to process, and it is certainly not feel-good. It delivers its themes and ideas expertly and with the impact of a sledgehammer. It left a mark on me. It took a toll on me just getting through all of the 50-plus tracks on that double album. Uh, true, it made me anxious as hell, but it also made me think a hell of a lot, and it shook me up. That's what we always say that we want out of art, out of truly great theater. It's the mark of truly great theater. 
Theater. And so I say that Caroline should have taken the prize for Best Musical. So let it be written. In terms of ranking the show, uh, I'm going to put Caroline or Change at the top of the list. That's right. It's going right into the number one slot. Uh, I thought about maybe putting it right behind Passing Strange, but when you consider all over again how it's a completely sung through, uh, completely composed from beginning to end, it never once loses steam. Like, how is that not the number one show? We have to give it to the number one show. Carolina Change, thank you so much. I am so grateful to have experienced you, and I, I, I believe that you're going to be sitting in that spot for quite some time, so get used to it, Carolina liner change. No show-related ephemera this week, uh, so of course uh, following that segment, we would take the time to take a ride on the musical carousel to determine which show we discuss next, but we have another Patreon donor. That's right. Thank you so much, Brad, for being our latest Patreon donor. Uh, Brad reached out to me, and uh, of course, he uh, gave enough money. I'm going to go into the whole tiered system here in a second, but he gave enough money to pick which show we discuss next. And so next week, we are going to be talking about a winner for the Tony Award for Best Musical. That's right. Not a nominee, a winner. This winner uh, was in 1966, and that show is Man of La Mancha. So excited to dip back into that. I I didn't own either of the cast recordings, the original or the early 2000s revival. So I immediately bought those. I'm going to watch the movie. I'm really excited to dive right into that. Uh, let's let's talk about the Patreon page, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Uh, if you are able and willing to uh, give money to the show each month, I would be eternally grateful. I would be so grateful that I'm going to give you prizes and benefits based on how much you're giving. So if you're giving a dollar a month, uh, you're going to get a, a verbal shout out in every single episode. So let's do that now. Thank you so much, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you very much. If you're giving $3 a month, you get a musical shout-out just like the one Matt got. It was very weird. (laughs) So you get a musical shout-out much like the microwave that you heard earlier. You're going to get a shout-out in the style of a composer or musical theater character of your choice. If you give $5 a month, you get to determine, you get a one-time opportunity to stop the musical carousel and determine which show we discuss next. But uh, beyond all of this, uh, beyond all of this, if you give $10 a month, you get access to a monthly bonus series Yes, each month uh, we are going to release an episode in a series known as The Snub Club. It is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Uh, and the first episode, it came out today, the exact same day that this drops. Uh, the episode of The Snub Club dedicated to Amelie will be available on our Patreon page. Again, that is patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. But again, it will only be available to those who give $10 a month. And our next subject is... Uh, it's announced in the Amelie episode, but the next subject for the Snub Club will be Merrily We Roll Along by Stephen Sondheim. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be our March episode of the Snub Club. You might be wondering, where's all of this money going to? If I do give money, how is it going to be used? Is it just going into your checking account? No, it's, it is being used in service to the show. The money that you give allows me to offset the cost of buying cast recordings for the sake of including clips in every episode that we hear. It allows me to rent the movie versions of the musicals that we're discussing. Uh, it also helps me to offset the cost of hosting the show's feed via Podbean. That costs about 100 bucks a year. So, uh, you know, we want to try and get to a point where uh, we're getting in total $100 a month in donations. If we are able to get to that point, if all of your total donations meet or exceed $100 a month, 
I'm going to start an entirely new uh, series, a third series that will be available in the main feed. Everyone will get access to this because it's going to be something that I want to give to everyone for being so generous. And that's going to be known as The Movie Musical Man, in which I discuss movie adaptations that we normally wouldn't encounter. Uh, Movie adaptations like uh, Hello Again or The Last Five Years. I would love to do that, but I really, I think that could only be justified if with time we were able to get there. And I think we can. Uh, I'm in no rush. I'm going to be doing this either way. But again, if you are able to give, that would be so generous of you. Thank you so much in advance if you choose to do so. If you do not choose to do so, thank you anyway. I I love that you're here and listening. If you're listening through iTunes, please leave a five-star rating and review in the iTunes store. If you're streaming, that's either through Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean. Our Podbean site is musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Please follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Like and retweet all of our posts. And you can email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Send me your thoughts on any of the shows we've discussed. Send me questions, comments. Uh, Don't yell at me. (laughs) I haven't had that happen so far, and I would like to continue that trend. Thank you so much to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and to Zach Little for our beautiful music. There it is. I wasn't surprised. I knew it was coming, Patty. I knew it was coming. Ah, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Good night.